Father, thank you so very much for the opportunity to uh, study your word today in this dialogical setting where we get to go back and forth, we get to hear, we get to inject, interject, we get to inter interact with one another, but most importantly, we get to interact with your word and your presence and the power and the wisdom of your spirit, Father. We pray that uh, this day would bring glory to you and particularly ask that you lead us and guide us by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in the last study of this book. The book, again, was titled A Biblical Theology, Theological excuse me, Introduction to the Old Testament, The Gospel Promised. Um, we are in First and Second Chronicles. Next week, PJ is going to uh, start us off. I think it's four weeks for PJ is what we finally decided. He'll take on different false beliefs, false religions, over the course of the next uh, three slash four Week, so we'll, we'll take a look at that. I'm not sure the order. Somewhere in there is Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Islam, and I'm not sure what the fourth one is. So looking forward to that. But this morning we, we are in the Old Testament themes class. We're in class 24. We're dealing with First and Second Chronicles. Uh, our author today is Richard L. Pratt, Jr. He's been a, uh, had a few of the, the books throughout this uh, larger book of all the books of the Bible, and we get to end with him today. Um, my hope is that you see at the end of this that Chronicles is not a repeat of, first, of Samuel and uh, Kings. Sorry about that. I, I got stuck. Samuel and Kings. Um, it is a different take. There is a different message. There is a different theological emphasis, and that's why we have First and Second Chronicles. And it's, we know that it's the Lord that does the inspiring of the, the chronicler, as he's referred to. And so hopefully we'll get a better understanding of the theology. And it's really neat. It's not just it's the Old Testament Hebrew Bible parks this as the last book of the Hebrew Bible for theological reasons. And I hope that you go, oh. I'm going to just whet your appetite on a couple of the theologies, and I'm going to list the other ones because we won't have time to go to them all. But the, he brings up so many topics designed to correct and advance and look forward to what's going in the New Testament. So with that, um, I've got a, uh, some questions down as we get down to the structure. I've got more questions. We'll just lay a little bit of foundation as we go over the author, the audience, the date, and the genre. So the author, uh, although the, uh, the author is unknown, he is often referred to as the chronicler. Some clues from the book give us a general understanding of his identity. Uh, number one, he was among the leaders of Israel because he had access, meaning these books are kept uh, um, guarded, the, uh, these original autographs, and they would be under the, the protection of, the, of the, the king or the religious system. Uh, um, so not all the people, well, not, nobody, uh, had access to them outside of the king and the religious leaders. So he was among the, the leaders of the Israel because he had access to Samuel and Kings, so the, those old books, old, uh, well, I'll just continue on, to non-canonical prophetic books, which we have, um, or their reference anyways, and various royal annals of Israel and Judah. Second point. The chronicler was probably from the tribe of Levi. So he's, he's, he, whether he's a, a politician or an actual Levite, one of the, uh, the priests, uh, Lee Line, um, 
that he's going to have some really good emphasis and knowledge of those areas. So the chronicler was probably the, from the tribe of Levi and perhaps even the high priestly family of Zadok. He had a keen interest in the priesthood and took time to focus on, you're going to see this, these are some of the repeated theologies in uh, this one book we call two books, on sacrifices, the Levitical services, and the temple. Particularly, we're going to take a look at the temple today. Much more than Samuel, Kings, or Ezra, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. So he's going to take what was emphasized, well, what was talked about in those earlier books, and he's going to bring greater emphasis to them. Um, some of, um, let me ask you this. I'll just on the fly ask you a question. Why do you suppose he has a desire to place a greater emphasis on these three areas: sacrifices, the Levitical services, and the temple itself? What has gone on? Uh, go ahead. Uh, let's get all the way back to Glenda. There's some history that has taken place that would cause a need for this or create a need for this. The exiles that, that come back to Judah from Babylon need encouragement. Need, okay, need encouragement. So um, reading um, Chronicles really focuses on just all the good stuff that happened, and they can do it again. It's good. So there's a... There's a, a, a motive for encouraging the, the ones, the exiles that have returned, um, and to return to that, what was once part of the robust kingdom life. So let's just continue on then. Let's look at the audience. The audience um, in, in this particular book are the other religious and political leaders in the post-exilic Israel. Um, so he is a leader talking to leaders. That should not be foreign to us as Christians because Paul writes two books to his protégés, Timothy. Actually, he writes, he writes two letters to Timothy and Titus. Those are his protégés, leaders writing to leaders. Now, th on this particular case, as it relates to Paul and his protégés, it's kind of downward. On this one, it's kind of directly horizontal. He's writing to the other leaders to get their attention. Remember the saying, as the king goes, the, uh, the kingdom goes. So he's writing to the leadership of Israel to do this work of making sure that things are right in the kingdom. So let's continue on. The date. The style of Hebrew in the book gives no indication of influence from the Greek language. So that means that we, it has to be before Alexander the Great shows up um, in, in history. Thus, the book was written before Alexander the Great took control of Palestine around 330 BC. The range of years possibly identifying the date of authorship is most likely 515 through 390 BC. So you get an idea of when authorship took place. All right, let's talk about the genre. It's theological and historical narrative, and it's fascinating because he, it, both of those, because he's going to use both as a tool to help the other one. Let's look at this. In other words, the Chronicler presents history and theology in the form of a literary work designed to lead its original audience, which is the Israel's, Israel's religious and political leaders, step by step through a process of theological reasoning. The Chronicler is reasoning to his own contemporaries, this is the ideal we should be living in. So he's, he's, it's a, it's a, in some ways, it's a book of reasoning towards to make sure that um, Israel, through its leadership, stays on track. He ordered his presentation 
to persuade, in other words, the order that he came up with, to persuade his audience to endorse certain kingdom beliefs, attitudes, and actions. All right, so let's walk through the structure. The structure, this part was particularly helpful for me to partition, to see the partitions that the chronicler did. He, he takes pivots, and there's four scenes, if you will, um, within the, the main uh, book itself. So part one, it deals with the identity, the privileges, and responsibilities of God's people. The chronicler drew his audience's attention to genealogies that identify who should be counted among the people of Israel and what privileges and responsibilities God has ordained for them. The genealogies demonstrated that all the tribes of Israel were to be counted among God's people. And the, uh, first off, before I get to that, the question I've got listed there, let me read to you that last sentence again and see if I can get an answer. The genealogies demonstrated that all the tribes of Israel were to be counted among God's people. Why is it that that wouldn't be a logical cultural thinking at that time, that all the tribes of Israel would be counted as part of Israel, the whole nation. Let's go, we got Wayne over here. What, what had happened that would cause there to be some type of a, a thought process the of The diaspora and the uh, separation of the 10 uh, tribes of Israel and the Hellenization of those tribes, uh, there was a big division. Wonderful, exactly. So when, when we see the, the move from Solomon's son, we see Rehoboam he, he listens to the counsel of his younger, his younger counselors, his contemporaries, rather than the older counsel, the more wise people in the kingdom. And Rehoboam says, yeah, I'm going to go ahead. You, you, my dad basically controlled you at a, at a, a level that was not near what I want to place upon you. I'm going to have you doing all sorts of manual labor to advance this kingdom. And then you see the split of the northern or the ten tribes. And then Jeroboam, what does he do? Whoa, I don't want everybody going in, from the northern kingdom to Jerusalem to go participate in all of the religious fest festivals that are demanded by the covenant people of God. So he puts in the south in Beersheba all the way up to Dan in the north, you know, part of the northern kingdom in that geography. He makes sure that they're on either end of the geography so the people in the middle go either up or down. They're going to worship the priest he installs at the altars that he has created for the false gods that the northern tribes are going to worship. So as soon as you hear false gods, the southern tribe says, they're no longer the true Israel. We're the true Israel, and they're not. They're apostate, and they're right in, some, in, a, in a very real sense, but we, don't, we see that this is not God's plan. God's plan isn't to have a division. So this is what the chronicler is dealing with there. So let me ask the question now. It says, question, how does the New Testament correlate to this truth? This truth of uh, demonstrating all Israel is to be united back to one Israel. How do we see that played out at a, at a more grand level in the New Testament? We, oh, real quick, I'm going to get you. I'm just pointing you out so Mark knows where to go. I'm not asking you to actually start talking until the mic gets there. <laughs> I'm thinking of in, in Ephesians where the Gentiles are folded in. Um, alongside with um, the Jewish nation as all one uh, with Christ. Good, good. We also see it in Romans. What does it talk sure. about with Romans? Romans 14. Yeah, with the, the grafting in. Um, okay, so we see that God's plan, whether it's with the, the Israel as the divided kingdom or the, all the earth, 
with all of the, the pagan given over to the, the rule, the, all of the other nations were given over to the different, uh, I'll just say, I'll, were given over to pagan understandings. They let, God let them, by the way of their punishment, uh, live out their paganism. But that's not, his, that's not the end game. That's just what he does temporarily while he's establishing the nation of Israel to be his tool to bring the message of God to the other nations. Okay, let's continue on. Oh, by the way, actually, um, I wanted somebody to, to recite out loud Revelation 7, 9. If uh, anyone would like to do that, Mark will find you. If you want to put your hand up, if you got it. Revelation 7, 9, as it relates to all the nations. Or I love that, and you can you can see why in seven nine you're going to see a T word in there. And now that you know the story of the Old Testament, you'll understand why the T word is in Revelations. Uh, revelation. I don't say it plural, Nick. One revelation. Revelation seven nine. After, <clears throat> after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Pretty cool. You think he's talking to the, to the Jews when he's making sure that he includes the word tribes so that they get, just as you were all uh, tribes that I set apart um, at, to be one, I identified what the tribes would be, the numbers, and then you divided off because you were disobedient, but I brought you back. So true is this, the, the, the greater story is what he's doing in all the earth. All right, let's look at part two. The ideal United Kingdom, and it's got the verses there that uh, um, it goes through the partitioning. Uh, for, the reason, for reasons of anyone listening online, I'll, I'll share what it is. This partitioning is from 1 Chronicles 9, 35 through 2 Chronicles 9, 31. So let's, uh, there's a little bit of overlap between the, the first two. Let's, let me go ahead and read. These chapters deal primarily with the reigns of David and Solomon, father and son, in other words, and explain how they, and notice what I have underlined, because this is what we're going to really focus on in this particular area. They received God's blessing as they unified the nation and devoted themselves to the temple. It's and devoted themselves to the temple that I'm going to ask a question on. So there's two parts. We saw the, the uniting of the nation in part one. But I want to make sure that we focus now on the, the devoted themselves to the temple. The chronicler omitted most of the well-known failures of these kings that were recorded in Samuel and Kings because he sought to persuade his audience to seek, to seek God's blessing in their day by following the positive features of the reigns of David and Solomon. And we heard that. Actually, Glenda gave us a, a picture of that. That was the, the encouragement, the encouraging look. Focus on what uh, this, I'm showing you what they did right. This is where you should be focused on. Now, at least at this stage of what he's revealing, he's going to get to the curses in the next area. Um, so the question remains, how does this prepare New Testament believers to understand Jesus as the temple? What were they doing? What was the chronicler having them see or understand about the temple? I underlined it. And now, how does that translate or correlate into the New Testament and what we're to do with the temple? What interaction were we to have with the temple? What mindset were we to have with the temple? Either I'm, I'm, I'm asking questions that are amiss, or you don't have enough coffee, or I'm just, I'm ahead of, I'm just, I get a chance to dig into this stuff 
I spent four or five hours this week digging into this, and I come here. You guys just got here in the morning, and I expect you to answer tough questions. So I'll just, I'll just share it with you. So just as the, the chronicler is trying to get them to realize they are to devote themselves to the temple to receive the blessing and all that was intended for the covenant community to know and interact and experience with the God of the covenant community, well, the God of the covenant community is the temple in the New Testament. He, Jesus Christ is the temple. So we're to, to devote ourselves to the temple. We're to devote ourselves to Christ as the New Covenant community, New Testament Covenant community, to experience the fullness, the joy, the loving experience of God and community. So if we miss that, if you, if you wonder why you had a lousy day, you might be able to look back. I don't know. I'm not saying in every case this is a situation. You might be able to look back and go, yeah, I really didn't devote myself. I didn't spend much time focusing on devoting my day to Christ. I was more putting out fires as they were coming and just trying to stay alive kind of an attitude versus this is everything that's happening in this day is ordained by, by my God before I ever deal with it. Will I deal with it in a mindset of devoting what my actions and my responses and my attitudes are to my God and look for him, look for his help, look for his grace. So we're interacting as, as the, the God of the covenant and the covenant-keeping individuals that we should be. All right, I promise the other ones will be a little easier. Let's get to part three. Judah during the divided kingdom. This is 2 Chronicles 10, 1 through 28, 27. Rather than alternating between northern and southern kingdoms like the Book of Kings, remember, it'll do that. It'll, it'll, it'll say, oh, this king does, did, did evil in God's sight, and then it all of a sudden it'll be the northern kingdom, and then it'll, it'll say, oh, and then, then back to the third year of this southern king's reign, and then he'll, more history will take place. Back and forth and back and forth. He doesn't do that so much, the chronicler. Rather than alternating between the northern and southern kingdoms like the book of Kings, this section of the chronicles concentrates on events in Judah from the days of Rehoboam. That's, again, that's the, the son of Solomon that took over the the, what turned out to be the southern kingdom. He originally took over the whole kingdom, but the, the northern kingdom split. To the days of Ahaz. I'm not talking about, it's not talking about Ahaz of Israel. It's talking about Ahaz of uh, Judah. So he's talking, he's capping off. He's saying, all right, beginning with Rehoboam, all the way through a chronological order, all the way to Ahaz, I'm going to deal with something here. So let's take a, take a look at what he's dealing with in the kings of the south. In so doing, the chronicler led his audience to consider how the blessings and curses of God depended both on the rule of David's house and the observance of the temple and its services. So we're back to the temple having significance. He's continuing to focus on that. And then the underlying section here, or uh, sentence that I've got, that we're going to focus on, he rehearsed different scenarios of blessings and curses so this audience could evaluate similar patterns in their own day. All right. There was something that happened. Um, I'm going to forget the, the name of the two mountains. In Deuteronomy, we've got the, uh, the old, uh, anybody over the age of 20 and above, which happens to be the age a man can, uh, enters the army. So if you're 20 above and above, you are a warrior or you're, you're, you're available to be a, a warrior to a certain point. God says all of those 
that uh, um, wouldn't, when the spies came back and said, yeah, we can't take this place, we can't do it, they're too big, they're too, they're too overwhelming, we'll get killed, let's not go. God punishes them by saying, you will not step foot in the, the, in the promised land. You will die off before I, I, I bring your children, who you said you were doing this all for your children's benefit. Oh, they're going to get the benefit, but you're going to get none of it. Um, you said you were protecting your children. No, you were, not, you were not being faithful to me and trusting in my ability to defeat the enemy in the promised land. So they've died off. So now it comes time, and what does he do? When they, as soon as they enter the promised land, he has them go on two different mountains, Jerizim and, ooh, starts with, I can't think of the other mountain. One mountain, they're right across each other in a valley. We know valleys. We live in the valley of the sun. On one mountain they stand, and it's actually at the base of the one mountain and at the base of the other mountain. One mountain has all desert landscape. The other mountain has all paradise landscape according to, to what we're told in the geography. The ones that stand next to paradise, they recite the blessings that, that will be received by the covenant community. The ones who stand on the mountain, at the base of the mountain, that is the desert land, landscape, their job is to recite all the curses. So they're reciting it to each other across this valley, and this bold voice is going out of the people. If, you know, here are the curses. And the, everyone on the blessing side is looking at that desert, like we know the desert, and going, Ugh, that's a place of desolation. Now, I know we understand there's beauty in the desert, but when you contrast it and you're standing on the side that is now um, going, called to rehearse and call out and say as the, as the people of God, as a whole assembly, all the curses, you're looking over at the beauty of the other mountain going, oh, we don't want to be on this mountain. We want to be on that mountain. So that took place to the people so they could have something visually tangible so to remind them Blessings are better than curses. So what does the chronicler do? He's reciting this again. He's getting the people to relive this in their minds so that they, if, if for reasons, if, if the reason for doing it for God's glory falls short in your mind, it's not enough of a motivator, remember how terrible these curses are as a motivator. Remember what your life will be like when you don't receive the blessings. So that's what the, the chronicler is redoing that as a picture. It's kind of a, a neat picture. And then finally, number four here. This one I just find fascinating beyond what I've, uh, maybe my excitement has exampled um, thus far today. This is the reunited kingdom. This is from Second Chronicles 29.1 through 36.23, the end of, the, of Second Chronicles. This portion of Chronicles extends from Hezekiah to the decree of Cyrus. So let me ask you what, uh, if anyone knows this, you're probably a Bible geek if you know this. But God bless we, that, we, that we have some Bible geeks in our congregation. What happens in 722 B.C. to the northern kingdom? We got people yelling it out. We got some Bible geeks here. I'll, I'll have Wayne uh, um, and it's, uh, to go ahead and announce it. What happened? Shnechrib, uh, the Assyrians took the ten tribes and dispersed them. Yep. Uh, God, God uh, didn't divorce, it, he dispersed them. He takes them out of the land, and as the Assyrians, later to become the, the Babylonians, um, they disperse them in their own lands that they've already uh, occupied. So they take them so they can't go back, and what they leave is only a remnant of feeble people, if you will. They weren't the best of the best that typically are left behind. Um, and they take the best, and they put them in and distribute them um, in the different areas of their land so that they can't, there's not enough of them in any one place to do any, any 
political uprising or rebellion, military uprising. So that's what happens in 722 B.C. Does anyone still have, when Pastor Pete created this, I geeked out because this is so helpful to me. Does anybody have this one that Pastor Pete created when he was doing a Bible study probably about two years ago? When, whenever I'm up here, and it, whether I'm preaching or I'm doing Sunday school, and I hold up my Bible and all the papers go flying out, this is one of the papers that goes flying out because I like it so much. It's, it's the divided kingdom by way of Judah and Israel, and it shows all the kings. And so I, I want to I read to you real quick to give you an idea of the history of Judah because there's a reason why the chronicler is starting with Hezekiah, and you won't get it unless you understand the history of the other kings of Judah. So we've got here, it starts off with Rehoboam. Remember, he's the son of Solomon. Um, and he says this. So I'm, I'm going to give you this. I, again, this is a, it's so cool that Pete got it. I don't even know where he got it from. It's start and end. Some of the teams, I'm not just going to say evil or good. I'm going to use the, the, the categories of start and end. Some of them start evil, excuse me, start good and end evil. Some of them are just evil all the way through. So you've got Rehoboam. He's evil, evil. Then you've got... Uh, Abijah, evil, evil. Esau, good, good. Very rare, by the way. Josephat, good, good. Jehoram, evil, evil. Azar, uh, 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 excuse me. Ahaziah, uh, uh, Ahaziah. Sometimes my mind just freezes. Ahaziah, evil, evil. Uh, Athaliah, evil, evil. Uh, Joash, good, evil. Bummer, started off good. Amaziah, good, evil. Uh, Uzziah, Good, and at the very end, evil. That, remember Isaiah said uh, after the, king of, the reign of King Uzziah, he saw in the, the, the throne room and he saw the, the, the temple of the, uh, excuse me, the, the train of the, the Lord's robe there. That, this is after the death of that, uh, that king, Uzziah. Then you got Jotham, good, good. Uh, Ahaz, uh, excuse me, Ahaz, evil, evil. So you've got Rehoboam starting off evil, evil, and then you end with uh, Ahaz, evil, evil, and then you get the Hezekiah. Do you see there where Hezekiah, look on your paper, when does he start his reign? 716. So he starts his reign after the uh, uh, northern kingdom is taken away. They're exiled oh, into all of the providence that Assyria has assimilated through their um, uh, military defeats. So you've got to see this. If you know that's what's going on and you know only the remnants are hanging around, out in the northern kingdom and they are prey to anybody because they are just the remnants. They're the, they're the feebles. There's no military power, no military might. God loves those who are humble and considered low in the culture. Turn to Second uh, Chronicles 30, verses 1 through 9. I want you guys to see what Hezekiah did uh, that is so cool as it relates to bringing the kingdom back together as one. Second uh, Chronicles 30, 1 through 9. Somebody read that one, and then somebody else can read 18 to 21. Second Chronicles 30, 1 through 9. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Right, Ephraim and, and Manasseh are northern tribes. These are the bad boys. These are the ones that, were, that they, they didn't like. They weren't the real ones. But Hezekiah, they weren't the real Jews, the real Israelites. These are the apostate ones. But Hezekiah is reaching out to them. Keep going. Um, 
come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at I'm sorry, they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who had escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that is that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. All right, so what an incredible thing that's happening here. God is, changed, uh, or is directing uh, Hezekiah's heart. So he says this, O people of Israel, return to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and Israel. He doesn't use the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's using the name Israel on purpose. That he may turn again uh, to the remnant of, of, of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. we got a problem. So according to the Pete's Cool chart, Rehoboam, the, the uh, son of Solomon, starts his reign in 931 B.C. And then according to the same cool chart, I'm getting a little playful with you, the, uh, um, we're now somewhere, because it's Hezekiah reign, we're at least at 716 B.C. We've got 200 years of the remnant that's there not knowing how to worship their true God, the covenant God. They've been institutionalized. We're seeing it in, our, in the United States on all of the crazy things that we, we're trying to be institutionalized on. They were institutionalized on how to worship all the false gods of the different countries that have made their journey across that land at one time or another. So they don't know how to do it. They can't come into the presence of God and do what, what Hezekiah is asking them to do, to come and worship and, and be part of this Passover meal if they're not clean. And look how merciful God is in uniting. He first starts with the remnant. Somebody read uh, uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 30, verses 18 to 21. Who's got it? Uh, it looks like Jamie does. This is 30, 18. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, all northern tribes, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. That would for, be a very big problem. 
dead on arrival, you get serious punishment from God for doing that. You do not participate in an unclean manner. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah speaks. You can, you can hang on right there. Okay. Perfect. Um, interesting, he healed them. Why did he have to heal them? And you don't, this is rhetorical. I'm going to give it to you. The curse is included. Uh, part of the curse was that you would be, just like he had done with the plagues of, of Egypt, he would bring on them if they participated um, in an unclean manner in the things that allowed them to get close to God, the Passover. So they participate, but because Hezekiah prays, he heals them. Can you imagine participating? You were called there by the king to participate, and you're starting to realize that you're, you're receiving the curse upon you, and yet God allows you just enough to see the curse and realize that he's a merciful God. He heals you at that point. So the remnant now gets it, that God wants the totality of it. So then when you, by the time we get to, this is Hezekiah, and then it, and what the Chronicle does, he, he talks through Hezekiah all the way to, in this last portion, through the call of, of, of Cyrus. What is Cyrus doing? He says throughout his whole kingdom, the remnant stayed back in Israel, in the northern kingdom territories. The rest of the kingdom was exiled. The ones that were of more value to the Assyrians, they were exiled and distributed through the kingdom. And then Cyrus, by way of God putting it in his heart, calls out an edict that says, now all you people are going to go home and rebuild the temple and worship your God there. So now God is going after the rest of everybody. So now that you have that picture, I asked the question for you, how is Pentecost significant in advancing this theme in the New Testament? What happens at Pentecost that, that reinforces this idea? Uh, it looks like Wayne's got a, or, uh, yeah, Wayne's got a thought. I know we're getting deep here, but I'm hoping you guys are starting to see some connections. The God of the New Testament is great, excuse me, of the Old Testament is gracious also. It's not, Jesus isn't the good, nice God, and, and God the Father of the Old Testament is the mean God. Go ahead. During that portion where they're speaking in tongues, it says Parthian, Medes, Elamites, and the remnant of Israel. They were all together worshiping God at Pentecost. So they're united at that point. So you see them, absolutely. As they united under the Old Testament and what we just walked through, God is communicating to the the Jews, even the Jews of the apostate northern kingdoms by way of, the, of Pentecost, the first act we see at Pentecost, um, and, um, the, the first act of where we see tongues in the book of Acts it, on Pentecost, we see him doing that to let them know you are all one in the New Testament. We're going to see different groups in Acts. Pete's going to be talking through it. And different groups are going to receive these tongues of fire as authentication. He's going, he's using these different groups to show, and you, are, and you are part of the kingdom, and your group is part of the kingdom. He's showing that the, his whole plan was from the beginning to bring all the tribes and nations, when I say all, those within the tribe of nation that will bow the knee to Jesus Christ into the kingdom. 
It's not all as if you know, he, um, everybody's going to come in. It's to reach all the tribes and nations. So it's a beautiful picture of continuity there. All right, I'm going to um, just give you an overview. I'm just going to give you, I told you I'd give you a taste of one of the theologies. I'm going to use the, the theology of all Israel because we talked about it. But look at all the other themes there. There's northern Israel, international relations, royal and Levitical families, religious assemblies. The chronicler, chronicler, chronicler is dealing with all of these issues in the book of Chronicles. If you read it next time around and you have this list with you, you'll start to see that he's, there's theology behind why he's talking about what he's talking about in each of these. So let's talk about the theology behind all Israel. Why is he dealing with that? I'm going to read there. Although the early returnees of the exile had good reason to expect an outpouring of God's blessing in their day, why would they have such an expectation? Because God's the one who put the, the order of the edict in Cyrus's heart. God must be doing something. He's sending us back to our land to go rebuild the temple. This is a good work. They've got great expectations that the kingdom is going to be restored. The post-exilic community failed to experience these blessings because of their unfaithfulness. As a result, they had some successes, but they also endured discouraging economic hardship, significant foreign opposition, and domestic division. The chronicler found these disappointments intolerable as they failed to meet with the prophetic expectation. God told them they would be going back. God knew that they would, would, would rebel, and yet God was going to be gracious. It was prophesied ahead of time, and yet they're not. The chronicler is, he's not happy. He's not going to, well, when I say not happy, he's not going to stand for Israel failing in this, uh, this uh, attempt to reestablish the kingdom ideals. He's writing this book to get them to do it right, so to speak. The Chronicle found these disappointments intolerable as they failed to meet the prophetic expectation. Thus, the Chronicle sets out to reestablish God's kingdom ideal. So now as it relates to all Israel. When Chronicles was written, there was much confusion about who qualified as the people of God. So there, even if you were from the southern kingdom, if you, had, if you knew Joe Blow from the northern kingdom, were you being disobedient to God to recognize that he's part of the kingdom? So even the people that were, you know, I wasn't just being biased against you. Oh, you're northern kingdom. But I'm trying to be honoring God. Can the northern kingdom worship with us? Did, did they repent? You know, what, you know, what is that? There's confusion. They, as a southern kingdom citizen, you're not sure how to get this, what to do with your apostate brothers and sisters coming back into the fold, if you will. When the Chronicles was written, there was much confusion about who qualified as the people of God. Decades of exile had scattered the tribes of Israel and left them in disarray. Following the predictions of the Old Testament prophets, the chronicler longed for the people of God to be reunited in large numbers in the promised land. So he's dealing with large numbers. We saw Hezekiah was dealing with small numbers in the remnant. Different focuses going on here. The chronicler believed that God's people included more than the small po population of the post-exilic community. The restoration of the kingdom was incomplete unless Israelites returned to the promised land in large numbers. As such, one of his favorite expressions was all Israel. So the chronicler is taking what up to this point, every time you hear the word Israel after um, the division of the kingdom from north and south, you, almost every time um, 
in, you have to look, make sure of context. I would, I'll say it this way. The vast majority of use by the prophets in their writings when they're speaking of Israel is they're talking about the northern kingdom. What the chronicler is going to do is no longer think of Israel as the northern kingdom. When he uses uh, the term all Israel, he means all Israel, north and south. And he's trying to pound it into their heads. That's why he uses it 19 times. All Israel is to come back together in large numbers. And so that's one of the theologies that's going on in Chronicles. And I, I hope this has kind of wet your whistle, given you a little bit of curiosity to go, well, I'm going to read that book again. Every time I re read it or listen to it on my Bible app, I kind of blow by it because it's just the same stuff that was mentioned in Kings and Samuel. It's not. Something else is going on. It's the same history, but it's written for a different purpose. Go ahead. I was just going to add to um, the theology point you're making is not only Israel, but we've seen every single time that God has uh, redeemed his people and brought them back. They come back with servants and slaves and households oh, great. filled great. with the very people that oppressed them. And man, how gracious God is to let you be as a Babylonian made a slave to go have exposure to the temple and Lord willing um, bend the knee. So you see grafting or maybe not, grafting into national Israel, people who are totally outside of it. I mean, and um, God's been doing this since Ruth. I mean, a Moabitess is the one who gives, uh, is the, in the lineage of the Christ. And then I was gonna just also encourage anyone who does a, a read the Bible through in a year, I would encourage you to, to consider each year maybe looking and using a different organization or maybe a different approach. It's helpful. Um, this year I'm reading through scripture with the Old Testament being um, in the uh, the Hebrew Bible organization, and I, I have found it is really helpful for both focus and to see maybe some of the differences um, when you don't go Chronicles and Kings back to back, to actually go through, have a bit of a pause, and then go back into Chronicles, because I think that temptation is very much there to get lost in all the names, everything going on, right. and you feel like, wait a minute, this feels like repeat. Have I seen this before? So I'd really encourage this as a practical element, maybe separate those out, read Chronicles and Kings separately. Um, and one of the good ways to do that is go through scripture in a, at least the Old Testament in a Hebrew order. That's great. Thank you. Any other comments? I'll read the last sentence then uh, under approaching the New Testament, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. The ideal kingdom that the chronicler put forth to the Israelites did not see its fulfillment with the first advent of Christ. But Jesus will bring the kingdom to its consummation when he establishes the new heaven and the new earth upon his second coming. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you, we, we get a chance to understand at a deeper level, to make the connectivities, the connection point um, with the Bible and to see how gracious you truly are. We thank you for that. You become more beautiful, more magnificent, more glorious to us. You can't increase in that, but you do to us from our perspective as, we, as you, increase in our, you increase our understanding of you and your goodness and what you're doing in your economy. We thank you, and we realize we are completely dependent upon your spirit to reveal these truths to us. And thus, we beg you this day as we come together on the Lord's Day, to continue to do so in our worship service. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.